In California, general election season has begun. While not all of the ballots are counted, we now have a pretty clear picture of what the November election will look like locally. For the candidates that have now advanced, they now begin developing their strategy for the general. This episode, we're doing something a little different. You'll hear from members of the UT staff about the results and what they mean and what's next. Today is Wednesday, March 4th. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. The apparent rejection by voters on Tuesday of both measures A and B has sent a mixed message about development in the rural and semi-rural parts of San Diego County. On the one hand, voters appear to have convincingly rejected the Newland Sierra housing project, a 2,135 home development in North County, which had been approved by the Board of Supervisors in 2018. Measure B asked the public countywide to affirm the supervisor's approval, but the measure was losing by nearly 80,000 votes. Uh, out of more than 475,000 that were cast. Uh, there's still 350,000 ballots to be counted, so nothing is for sure yet, but uh, it looks like Measure B has definitely failed. Measure A, which would uh, require countywide votes on most large projects in the rural parts of the county, on the other hand, um, is failing. Uh, the yes on A people, the ones who put it on the ballot to try to uh, hold the supervisors accountable and let the public make these final decisions were ahead at the beginning of the night, but uh, as the votes came in from the precincts, eventually uh, Measure A was winning by 9,000. It's still too close to call, but uh, and either side is claiming victory or defeat, but uh, it's, it's not looking good for them. Um, I'm Jay Harry Jones, and let's... Uh, on Tuesday night, I covered the measures A and B, as I've been doing for quite a while. And what do you think this message means for the future of development in the region? Because this is a kind of a, I don't know, odd result? It, it is an odd vote. Um, you know, clearly, the voters over and over in the last few years have rejected these large projects when they have had a chance to vote on them. Lilac Hills in 2016, New Orleans Now. We've had uh, smaller ones in uh, a big commercial development in uh, Charlottesville a few years ago. Just yesterday, Del Mar uh, rejected a resort on these bluffs that was put on by the, the ballot by the developer. We've had things in Escondido and Poway both rejected. It, it's it's hard to imagine developers still trying to put things on the ballot or even get these large projects approved if they're just going to eventually be rejected by the voters in the end. So I don't know what it means, but I don't think it's a good thing for uh, you know development in the rural or semi-rural areas. Last night, San Diego voters showed very strong support for Measure C, which is a hotel tax to finance an expanded convention center, homeless initiatives, and repair roads. But that support wasn't strong enough to meet a very high bar, a two-thirds threshold for approval. So they got about 63.55%. There are still more outstanding ballots to be counted, but it's uncertain or unclear whether that's going to change much. So we have this seemingly popular measure apparently going down to defeat. I'm Laurie Weisberg, and I covered Measure C. So what's next after Measure C almost made it? 
So, you know, that has been a big question over the last decade because there have been so many other attempts to get this convention center expanded. This was the first citywide vote on it, but this has been a civic priority for years, and they've tried different things, and nothing seems to stick. So the, so the backers of this measure from the beginning told me there was no plan B. This didn't pass. That's it. We'll just have to settle for the convention center we have. It's, uh, there's going to be, I'm told, a meeting later this week of the backers of this measure, and they're going to discuss potential alternatives. One potential option up for discussion, uh, I think potentially later this week or next week in the weeks to come, is taking on the courts to see if they could get the courts to weigh in and say that a simple majority is okay for a tax increase. They, they got some hope from that in 2017 with the, when the California Supreme Court, in a narrowly written decision, suggested that a citizen's initiative need only simple majority. But there have been other court cases since, and it's unsettled law, so that could be a years-long battle. But it remains, it remains a potential option going forward for, for those who really think we absolutely need a convention center expansion. They, I don't know what they could be other than a potential legal fight to see if they can get a court to say that a simple majority is okay for a, a tax increase of this sort. But it does appear that there won't be another expand the convention center measure on the November ballot, right? Right. So as far as there's plan B for the homeless part of this measure, there's they're looking at a, a big housing bond for November, but there are no other magical sources of money for a convention center expansion. And does this put San Diego at risk for losing some conventions now that there's currently no plan to expand the convention center? That was the argument that the backers made throughout the campaign. Yes, they could, they'll probably lose larger conventions. Will they lose Comic-Con? I don't know, that's still a big question. They're here through 2024. The flip side though, this convention center does quite well for the size it is. It's nearly full year round and they can survive on that. But they're, you know, as we increase our supply of hotel rooms, there won't be this bigger center to fill those hotel rooms. Sarah Jacobs emerged from Tuesday night as the top vote-getter in the race for California's 53rd Congressional District, which is the race to succeed longtime San Diego rep Susan Davis. She's going to be joined by Georgette Gomez, a fellow Democrat and the president of the San Diego City Council, in what is already shaping up to be a pretty brutal uh, blue-on-blue feud. I'm Charles Clark. I'm a politics reporter at the San Diego Union-Tribune, and I spent last night covering congressional races in San Diego County. So when it comes to the 53rd, What are some of the resounding themes that are likely to emerge in the general? So, you know, we got a pretty early sign of the line of attack that's going to be going on, and they wasted no time going after each other. Uh, Sarah Jacobs, who more or less declared victory last night and this morning, sounded off about how she will be a consensus builder, someone to really bring actual impact to the district and things back to the district. She also made a comment of, you know, opposing Trump, supporting things like you know, uh, dramatic action on climate change, several other progressive goals. In contrast, Georgette Gomez, she put out a statement, you know, lauding her campaign and, you know, her progressive bona fides. But she then took aim at Sarah instantly saying, you know, through a consultant that this is going to be a race between a billionaire heiress and someone who's a grassroots organizer, someone who 
profits off of pharmaceutical companies is someone who doesn't, someone who's one of you. Mm-hmm. And then she, similar to Sarah, mentioned, I'm going to go fight Trump. Yeah. Do you have a feeling that the money aspect of this is going to be kind of the focus for anyone who is anti-Jacobs? Absolutely. I think it's interesting if you actually look at their respective platforms. Sarah Jacobs is a progressive. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, she is pretty adamantly to the left. Uh, you know, she supports the Green New Deal. She supports Medicare for All. Really, the only knock you have on her, and I think it is a knock among some Democrats, is that she's wealthy, right? And she's, you know, inherited wealth, which uh, a certain wing of the party certainly has a problem with. So it makes sense that Georgette's going to go at her over that. The other kind of primary issue, I think, in the race, and part of the reason you're going to see that is that when you stick Georgette and Sarah on the same debate stage, there's a clear divide in experience as far as, you know, Georgette is very much a local politician. She's used to local issues and she speaks really well about local issues, but she doesn't really speak on the federal aspects and foreign policy as well. That's Sarah's MO. You know, that's where her experience was. She was a contractor for the State Department. She's worked around. That's the area that she really excels and she knows that really well. So I think the big thing that I'm going to watch in this race is just how much this reflects what we're seeing on the national stage with Democrats, right? Is at the presidential level, you have Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden, the far left progressive wing of the party versus someone who is progressive, but known as more of the establishment figure, a moderate Democrat. Similar in this race, you have Georgette Gomez endorsed by Bernie, AOC. She's running as I'm the real progressive, the far left. And she's hitting Sarah, who is progressive, but more of the uh, establishment and kind of status quo in a way. Last night, Amar Kampanajar and Daryl Issa advanced to the November runoff in California's 50th Congressional District. My name is Sam Hodson. I'm a photojournalist at the Union Tribune. And yesterday I was covering the 50th Congressional District, the race to replace Congressman Duncan Hunter. So was this result expected that Carl DeMaio, the other Republican running, wasn't going to make it? That is what the latest poll said. Uh, And we're still waiting on final, final returns, though the numbers that we're looking at right now do indicate that Daryl Issa will make it through. I personally, from covering it, wasn't sure whether the polls were going to be right or not, because you did see see Carl DeMaio uh, pulling out these big crowds to town halls. I think he did 60 or 70 town halls over the course of his campaign. And when I was out there, there was a lot of enthusiasm for him. So you did have to wonder whether the polls were not going to be correct and whether Tamayo was going to pull through, but it doesn't seem like he did. So does the fact that Daryl Issa has really good name recognition and also lots of rapport in Congress kind of give him an edge over DeMaio? Uh It doesn't hurt. Uh, Carl DeMaio also has really good name recognition from the radio show that uh, he hosted for a number of years. Uh, but Daryl Issa definitely is a household name throughout San Diego County. And uh, I think we saw that that did a lot for him. And now as we move into the general election, what do you expect the tone to be in this fight? It's an interesting question. Uh, I, I wondered a lot about whether the, how the race would be different if DeMaio was in it or if Issa was in it. Uh, the campaign between DeMaio and Issa was certainly very negative. Uh, When you spoke to folks out in the district, they just said, I'm so sick of all this mail. I'm so sick of the ads. I cannot wait for Tuesday. The race against Camp Najjar when Hunter was running in 2018 was also incredibly negative. I mean, he 
was calling Campanajar a terrorist by the end of it. Uh, I don't think it will be that nasty, mm-hmm. but I think anything could happen, and I think whatever message is shared, it's going to be amplified very loud. As we saw, Congressman Issa was able to pour in $3 million into this campaign, and I don't think Hamar is going to be short on cash either. So a lot of this uh, reporting will all be in a forthcoming episode of the 50th. We've released uh, six episodes of this. It's a documentary series we've produced about the race to replace Congressman Hunter and his scandal. I'm furiously working on episode seven, uh, and we'll keep everyone posted about when that episode will come out. It'll be as soon as I can finish it. Finally, Michael Smolens, you're the political columnist for the Union Tribune. Looking back at last night, what do you see as, I suppose, the resounding theme of this primary election? Well, there's a a few. One, I think that the basic uh, anti-development political view in San Diego still holds strong with the rejection of uh, Measure B in particular, the uh, Newland Sierra development proposal up north of San Diego. With everything, there's sometimes a bit of a wrinkle or contradiction. It looks like voters are also going to reject Measure A, which would have put restrictions on development in a broad sense. So I think what I'm getting from this, because we've seen individual big developments, controversial developments, be rejected at the ballot box very consistently in recent years. But we've seen in a couple cases sort of the conceptual notion of limiting development, which you would think would follow, that would be uh, uh, popular, uh, haven't been approved. There was a measure up in uh, Oceanside, two years ago, and then this Measure A. Now, a lot of that has to do with what kind of campaigns and who's been uh, financing things. But that is sort of an interesting, uh, weird theme that uh, I hadn't really picked up on until just really kind of looking at the results in the history. And it seems like across many San Diego city races, many Republicans managed to move on to the general, even though they may have not necessarily had that much support previously. Yes. Uh, you know, <clears throat> local elections tend to be nonpartisan, or they are technically nonpartisan, but party politics always plays a role. So it's not surprising in a lot of those cases you do see a Republican advance. However, I think the Democratic trend in this city is still moving in th- that party's direction. We look to see the San Diego City Council uh, as even a stronger Democratic majority. Right now it's 6-3. And uh, Depending on what happens, that could be even expanded. There's a lot going on. We don't need to get into the weeds, which raises sort of an interesting question because we're going to start seeing more fighting among Democrats uh, who don't aren't always on the same page on everything. Yeah, it seems like California is kind of a good. Cool. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah. yeah, it seems like California, in a way, is a microcosm of what's happening in the Democratic Party nationally, in which you have an insurgent left wing challenging the establishment, and that isn't always going over smoothly with those that have been in power. That's the, that's true, and we do see that, and it's, uh, it, it's like you say, a microcosm, and there's a, a bit of a split in the, the local Democratic Party over, um, you know, they tend to favor the progressive candidates. Uh, a key one is uh, going to be an upcoming Democrat-on-Democrat race in the 53rd Congressional District with Georgette Gomez, who's the city council president, real favorite of the San Diego progressives, and Sarah Jacobs, who, of course, has a lot of money. We've talked a lot about that. 
she they're on the same page on a lot of things. I think she would consider herself a progressive, but there's just a few areas of difference. Uh, and there are other reasons for the, the difference in support they have, but th- that's sort of emblematic of things. Mm-hmm. And now that it appears that, at least nationally, things are kind of falling into place, the Democratic Party will likely know who will win in the coming months. Do you expect to see a tone shift as California moves into the general election with our local races? Well, I, there's always this hope and expectation that, that the parties will come together. Uh, everybody always gets very concerned uh, or points out when there's a lot of fighting, intra-party fighting during primaries, and parties tend to always come together. Not all, That's sometimes better than others. Uh, and right now, that's the big worry. Even though you, know, you mentioned that things will be settled, they might not be settled until they get to the uh, J- July convention in Milwaukee. And if it's a brokered convention, that could be very difficult and ugly, and there's, it could be hard feelings, and that could be tough to mend. But frankly, there's also concern even before that notion that that are there if it's Sanders are there enough moderates that would actually support him moving forward if it's Biden are there enough of the progressives and the Sanders people uh, moving forward or will they just not vote uh, which uh, is a real concern because the ultimate goal from their perspective is to defeat Trump and if they have that division going into November that could be a problem yeah it was certainly interesting seeing uh, Trump uh, President Trump tweeting amid the election last night. It kind of added a different flavor to, you know, previous Super Tuesdays. Well, I don't think this had a whole lot of effect, but I just sort of have to wonder to all the things that helped shift the dynamics with uh, Biden really gaining momentum, obviously, in the days leading up to Super Tuesday, particularly with the South Carolina primary and then Super Tuesday. If in the back of my mind, some Democrats, they, they, they were looking for who, who's the most viable beyond their political philosophy. Uh, and there was concern about Biden, but they also had to be concerned that that, uh, that Trump was making such a big deal out of wanting to run against Sanders. And there's this notion of, uh, should he be the one selecting who they want to run against? Now, there's plenty of evidence that suggests Sanders could well beat him. Certain polls show that, but uh, a lot of Democratic leaders don't think that would be the case. Mm-hmm. Things are certainly going to get interesting as we get closer to November. That's correct. All right. Michael Smolens, thank you so much. Thank you. In other news, a new scientific report says a magnitude 6.9 earthquake on San Diego's Rose Canyon Fault could damage 100,000 residences, cause widespread road and bridge failures, and make parts of Mission Bay sink about a foot, according to the most detailed disaster scenario ever done on the region. Such a tembler could also cut gas and water service from La Jolla to the Silver Strand, collapse some of the city's older municipal buildings, and close the San Diego-Coronado Bay Bridge. The study estimates that the quake could inflict $38 billion in building and infrastructure damages, displacing 36,000 households and wreaking havoc on San Diego's $245 billion economy. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekday evenings. To recap the Aztec season, listen to Aztec Hoopla. UT Sports Editor Jay Posner and Aztecs beat writer Mark Ziegler discuss SDSU hoops. For a full listing of our audio offerings, go to unionchibune.com slash podcasts. Until next time.